fear. It's an emotion that is triggered by something that causes us to be disturbed or distressed. And our body is flooded with adrenaline. And we are responding either by fight or flight or we freeze. The South African scholar, Dr. Archibald Hart, did a major study on stress. And in that study, he shows how an overindulgence of adrenaline can cause such devastating effects to us human beings. So I've got half a dozen questions today. The first question is, what is fear? The second question is, what are some fears? The fear of failure, and that will generate a reluctance to take part and a withdrawal. The fear of rejection, which will make us envy of those who are accepted. The fear of losing my control, which will finish up making us a bully, and unfortunately, all too often in marriages. The fear of losing my finance, which can produce a meanness of spirit. The fear that I'm going to lose my job, which can cause insecurity and mistakes at work. The fear of the unknown, which can actually cause us to lose our faith. The fear of change, which will inevitably produce bigotry. Fears like, I'm not wanted, I'm not loved for who I am, I'm not accepted, I don't have all the gifts that other people have. Fears like that simply generate antisocial behaviour. My third question is what value does fear have? Does it have any value? Yes, it does, because it alerts us to danger. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, what are the predominant things we Christians should fear? He said, do not be afraid of those who can kill the body but can't kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your father? And even the very hairs of your head are numbered. So don't be afraid, you are worth more than many sparrows. Does fear have a positive value? Yes, it does. Because it makes us aware that some places, some friendships, some relationships, some circumstances are unsafe. And fear generates choices. It causes us to make choices. And according to our personality, some of you will be frozen by fear. You will be bound into an inactivity. Some of you will simply want to run away. Or if you're Irish like me, you'll want to come out fighting. Who uses fear? My fourth question. We do. Our body and our mind uses fear to protect ourselves. But Satan uses fear to cripple and to defeat and to force us into foolish or rash decisions. And evil people use fear. They use it to hurt us or to control us or to frighten us or to belittle us.
or to abuse us. Dr. Henry Cloud, and it was my privilege at the Willow Conference in Chicago to actually hear him in a lunchtime meeting with Margaret Spicer. He has a talk, Henry Cloud, on the kinds of people that we can meet. He says there are wise people, and you'll know they're wise people, because when you talk to them and correct them and discuss with them, they respond positively. So keep talking and keep connecting with them, because it works. But Dr. Cloud says there's another group of people who are fools, and they won't listen. So therefore, talking simply doesn't work. He says unless you put limits and consequences, nothing will change. But Dr. Cloud is a practical man and he points out there are also evil people. And their intention is to hurt us. And in that circumstances, he says we need L, G and M. Lawyers, guns and money. Because we have to protect ourselves. Proverbs chapter 29, verse 6 and 9, God says some things about evil men. He says, an evil man is snared by his own sin, but a righteous man can sing and be glad. He says again here, the fear of man will bring forth a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord will be kept safe. My fifth question is, what does scripture say about fear? I looked up the Cruden's Concordance and there's over 600 verses in there about fear. And interestingly enough, most of them are to do with the fear of God. The Hebrew word is yara, which actually is better translated, not fear, but reverence. Awe. The old theologians talked about the numinous experience, this wow experience, this awe of God. And sometimes I think as Christians who know him, we sometimes drift into the presence of God without realizing who he is. Job 28 verse 28 says, The awe of God is wisdom. Psalm 111 verse 10 says, The awe of God is the beginning of wisdom. In Proverbs 1, 7, the scripture says, The uh, uh, awe of God is the beginning of wisdom, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. And Proverbs 9, 10, the scripture says, The awe of God is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One, that is understanding. The first reference to fear in the Bible is Genesis chapter 3 and verse 10 after Adam and Eve had sinned. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of God as he walked in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid. How sad that they had this wonderful friendship, relationship, with God, and it finished up with fear and guilt because they sinned. What is sin? James chapter 3 verse 16 tells us, I once preached in a Baptist church and I asked them if they could recite John three sixteen, and to a man, woman, and child they did, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Then I asked them, could they recite James 3.16? And a kind of a giggle ran through the congregation and no one dared. 
John 3.16 is the key into eternal life. It opens the door to heaven and forgiveness. James 3.16 opens the the door into relationships with God and with men. Because James says, wherever you find envy and selfishness, you will find disorder and eventually every other form of evil. And that's what Adam and Eve did. They envied. They wanted to be like God. And they were selfish. They sang Frank Sinatra's favorite song in duet, I Did It My Way. What a way to start a marriage. In his book, John Ortberg has a very deep theological suggestion here about marriages who get into trouble. Perhaps your marriage has become a desert experience. You had hopes and dreams for it that haven't come true, may never come true. Will you be patiently obedient to God in your marriage? Will you love your spouse just one day at a time? Will you love wisely as you can when the props of romance and the bubbling hormones and the easy compatibility are kicked out from underneath you? An elderly couple lie in bed. She's not satisfied with the distance between them. She reminds him, when we were young, you used to hold my hand in bed. He hesitates. Uh, But for a few moments, a wrinkled hand snakes across the bed and grasped her hand. She's not satisfied. When we were young, you used to cuddle right up next to me. More serious hesitation now. Eventually, with a few groans, he laboriously turns his body and cradles hers into him as best he can. She's not satisfied. When we were young, you used to nibble my ear. There's a loud sigh. He throws back the covers and bolts out of bed. She's hurt by this. Where are you going? I'm going to get my teeth. Anxiety and fear are real. Buried in the Old Testament minor prophets is the story of God coming to Habakkuk the prophet with some unbelievable, horrendous, cruel promises about what the Babylonians are going to do to the children of Israel. And the prophet Habakkuk can't stomach it. He's absolute adamant. The argument with God is fascinating. And then Habakkuk gets to the quiet place. And in the quiet place, he sees things the way God does and writes these breathtakingly profound promises of what happens when fear turns into faith. I heard the promises and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Yet I waited patiently for the day of calamity that would come upon the nation And though the fig tree does not bud, and though there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet will I rejoice in the Lord and I will be joyful in God my Saviour, for the Sovereign Lord is my strength. Anxiety and fear... Jesus counted it with the beautiful word shalom, my peace. 
All this I have spoken to you, he says in John 14, verse 25, while I am still with you. But the parakletos, the comforter, the counsellor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Shalom, my peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to the world, give as the world gives. So don't let your heart be troubled and do not let it be afraid. It's only recently as a therapist I've been able to use St. Paul's writing in the Philippian chapter with any confidence. I've struggled with the verse that says, be anxious for nothing. I work with people who are anxious. Until I looked it up in the Greek and realized that God actually knows what he's talking about. Let me read it the way it should be read. Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. And I'm going to say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all, for the Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And if you do this, the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, that peace will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. So what are we to be anxious about? Things that are true and noble and right and lovely and admirable, and excellent, and praiseworthy. Think about those things you've received and heard, and if you put them into practice, the God of peace will be with you. And then there's Paul's wonderful promise to his friend young Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power, and of love, and of a sound mind. Well, all that's very well and true. But what if there are weapons of mass destruction, real ones out there? If you read the paper, you'll know Tony Blair in London is right in the middle of an investigation at the moment as to whether he and Bush genuinely had any evidence of the weapons of mass destruction before they decided to invade Iraq. Well, in Daniel chapter 3, there were some real problems. The three little Jewish boys who wouldn't bow down and worship the idols. And they were named Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And for the teenagers, if you want to remember those names, it's quite simple. Shake the bed, make the bed, and into bed you go. (laughs) They were thrown into a fiery furnace. The Hebrew word is aton, which is an oven, and it was heated seven times more possible than it was possible to be heated. And what did the fire do? It did nothing but burn the ropes that bound them. I love the scripture in Daniel three sixteen and 18 where the Jewish boys say to their persecutors, well, our God is quite able to save us, but if he doesn't, we're still going to praise him. And then the fire was there, and those who looked in saw four people walking in the fire, unbound and unburnt, and they said, one of them looks like the Son of God. And Daniel chapter 6, verse 22, make no mistake about it, they were real lions where Daniel was thrown. And the Lord says, the angel of the Lord shut the mouth of the lions. 
I think it was Moody, the great American preacher, who suggested the lions never ate Daniel because he was all backbone. I've been reading a book recently by Lars Brownworth called Lost to the West. It's the history of Constantinople. And in 1399, Emperor Manuel II was roving all around Europe trying to get Christian military soldiers to come and defend Constantinople because it was completely surrounded by the hordes of the Muslims under Bayezid. And then suddenly, for no reason at all, Bayezid's Muslim armies just moved away. They'd heard the rumour that Tamerlan the Lame with his Mongol horde was going to be invading the Muslim homelands. But if you want a more dramatic story of deliverance, try Sennacherib. He'd come down and surrounded Jerusalem with an impregnable army, with weapons of mass destruction that Israel couldn't cope with. And in their dilemma, the children of Israel prayed, and in the morning, with no fighting from them, they looked out and there were 185,000 dead soldiers around the walls outside Jerusalem as God moved miraculously. Look it up in 2 Kings chapter 19, verses 35 to 36. When real strife occurs and when real weapons are there, God's got a funny way sometimes of intervening. In Antony Bevor's book on Stalingrad, that great battle that was pivotal in the Second World War, the winter was so severe and the air was so frozen that both sides had to mothball their mechanized divisions. The Nazis' weapon of mass destruction was those phenomenal Nazi panzer tank divisions. And when the thaw came and the weather was better, they unmothballed the tanks, only the Russian tanks were now rolling. And the Panzer Division had real problems because, you see, the Russians know about field mice in the winter. And the field mice had got into the Nazi tanks and eaten out the electrical wiring. And on such little things, history can sometimes swing. In Judges chapter 6 and 7, we get a massive story about weapons of mass destruction. The Midianites had come with so many men and so many camels. The Bible tells us in chapter 5, they could not be counted. There were so many of them. And the children of Israel were driven off into dens and caves to survive. And it's there we meet Daniel. And it's an amazing story. Verse 11, the angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak at Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Ebezite, and there his son Gideon was thrashing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. Most scholars agree that the wine press was actually under the ground. It's rather like a water storage tank. If you go to the west of Auckland and see how they make wine, you can come to your own conclusions. It certainly is a great big tank container. And down in there, Gideon, hot and sweat and threshing and fearful of the Midianites, he must have been a real mess. And into the hole at the top, the angel pops down and says, Hi, Gideon, you mighty man of valor. Well, whatever else he was at that time, he wasn't that. And listen to the cynicism in Gideon that comes from fear. You know, I have no respect for cynics. They don't realize they've poisoned hope and faith and even reason by their cynicism. Listen to Gideon. 
I mean, here's God the angel, God the angel telling him he's got a purpose, and his reply, well, if God is with us and all of this is happening, where are all the wonders our fathers told us of? Do you get tired of old people telling you wonderful stories about miracles? Times when people came to Jesus? Do you know something? God hasn't changed. We've become cynical. That's what we've done. I remember the Chinese preacher holding up his Bible and saying, do you know why the church in Asia is flourishing and the church in the West is dying? Is because when I read my Bible, I read it like this. And when you read your Bible, you read it like that. (laughs) The angel asks Gideon to make an offering, and Gideon does that. And the angel touches the offering with Harry Potter's wand. He touches the offering and it's zapped. And now Gideon is overwhelmed by a new kind of fear. It's the awe of God. Gideon knows something's happened inside him. And he goes home and chops down the pagan idols his father's got. And I'm telling you, if God comes into your life and the power of the Holy Spirit makes you born again and you get some hope and faith in fear, the hardest place to change will be at home. God speaks to Gideon. Gideon calls a sign out for all the children of Israel and 32,000 men come and meet him at Harrods where the spring was. Harrods. I remember the occasion when a shop in Wellington dared to call itself Harrods. And Harrods in London mounted a huge financial attack, illegally challenging them for passing off the name of Harrods. And I love the story because every shop in the little town of Otrahonga sprang to the defence of the shop in Wellington and they all put up the sign Harrods in their shop window. And one even had a sign, if you can't get what you want here, try our other shop in London. (laughs) It was at Harrods by the spring that God now begins to talk to Gideon personally. Only years of cynicism and fear have had their effect on Gideon. The computer program hasn't yet been rewritten. And so what does Gideon do? He says, oh God, if you're really with me, um, I want to test. See this fleece, I'm going to put it on the ground, and if in the morning the fleece is wet and the ground is dry, then I know I can trust you. Well, God oblige us. But you see, the program has still not quite been rewritten. So he says, I want another test, God. This time I want the fleece to be dry and the ground to be wet, and God obliges. Uh, Meanwhile, there's 32,000 men there waiting and waiting for Gideon. Now God connects with Gideon in a very personal way. Now Gideon, um, you've got uh, too many men All those who are afraid, tell them they can go home. And 22,000 men go home. God says to Gideon, Gideon, you've still got too many. Take the 10,000 you've got left 
and go down and take them down into the water. And those who drink, cupping the water in their hands, I want to use those ones, I don't want the others. Most expositors are saying probably that was because those trained soldiers who drank like that were keeping an eye on events around them. And that's probably true. But uh, Commissioner Gilead in England, a preacher I heard once, suggested that that area of Israel is noted for intestinal worms in the water. And maybe God knew that 9,700 soldiers suffering from gastroenteritis wouldn't have been much use in the battle the next day. Now Gideon's only got 300 Now he gathers it together and he says to the quartermaster, I want uh, 300 trumpets, ram's horns. Um, I want uh, 300 pitchers, earthenware pitchers, jugs. And by the way, I also want 300 probably bulrushes soaked in petroleum tar and something to light them with. Then he takes the 300 and breaks them down into three little platoons of 100 each. And then he disarms them against the massive weapons of mass destruction. And they are to stand outside the camp in the pitch of the night, and they are to shout out at the given moment, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon, and to blow on the trumpets, and to smash the pitchers, and to let the oxygen flood into the flame until it burns and shatters the darkness. How do you carry a sword and a shield and a spear when you've got a jug and a pitcher underneath it and a trumpet in the other hand? You see, the Bible says that we carry this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency might be of God and not of ourselves. And what happened in that surprise attack? Well, here's one from the Second World War in uh, Kenneth Sanford's book, The Mark of the Lion, the story of Charles Upham, who won two Victoria Crosses. Now there were the odd stragglers joining in, glad to be given the chance of hitting back, linking themselves up with two queues of waiting men. In the face of collapse and near disaster, with men broken and exhausted, here was an example of resilience that was an inspiration. Beginning at a walk, the men began to run and to keep up with each other. And then as the buildings of the town of Galatus loomed up a couple of hundred yards ahead, suddenly there was a clamor from the throats of the men. It still rings in the minds of those who heard it. The whole line seemed to break spontaneously into the most blood-curdling shouts and battle cries, our chaps charging and yelling. Another one wrote, at one shout, One felt one's blood rising above fear and uncertainty in an inexplicable exhilaration beyond description. Into the town they charged. They were fired on from all sides, the roofs, the doors and windows. Many died quickly, some freely. The rest of them kept forging ahead until the enemy fell back, darting from their houses from the far side of the village. Another charge was thrown in, and this time the Germans broke and rang. It was scenes of great gallantry, men racing straight into the enemy guns, plunging into the horrors of bayonet warfare with a fury that comes from those who have been defeated for too long and have held back in fear too often. There are many who say that that hour was the fiercest fighting fought by the New Zealanders in the Second World War. All of this was happening where the Midianites were camped. We heard Reuben preach recently about the Hill of Moray, 
where God spoke to Abraham and gave him the promises that through him the nations of all the world would be blessed and that was the promise of the Messiah. And it was in that sacred place where God spoke, these evil Midianites with their weapons of mass destruction were camped. Only God has a way of destroying weapons of mass destruction. Camels stampede at loud noise and fire. The shout was made, the tumult was made, and I suggest something like 130 or 140,000 camels stampede through the tents in the dark. There's tent pegs and ropes and everything's chaos and the Midianites in their pajamas slashing with their swords at everybody that moved in the dark, only Gideon's soldiers are still outside the camp. And God came through. Well, that's a wonderful story. Let's wrap it up. What significance does that have for us? Every one of us at some stage or another face fears. And sometimes those fears are huge, like weapons of mass destruction. And if we listen to the story well, we'll know that first of all they were to shout, The sword of the Lord! Oh, come on, Ephesians chapter 6. What is the sword of the Lord? It's the word of God. And what does the trumpet, the ram's horn, signicate? In, in, in Israel, it's, it was significant for praise. When difficulties come, you hold on to the word of God. When difficulties come, praise is still the power of heaven. And the earthenware jug they smashed. Look, Paul tells us, 2 Corinthians 4, 7, we carry this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency might be of Christ and not of us. Now, what about the fire? Baptism? Just remember John the Baptist said, I truly baptize you with water, but there is one coming after me who will baptize you with fire. In Acts chapter 1 verse 8, it was Jesus who said, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. It begins at the new birth, but the baby doesn't stay newborn. The power of God is released. When you face, and I say when, not if, When you face fears and anxieties, and we all do at some stage, get a small group around you, like Gideon did. Practice focusing on what you do have. Praise about it. Acknowledge your sinful human weakness that God can use by his mighty power. And make room for miracles today of the Holy Spirit. Because he can destroy weapons of mass destruction. He can delay them. He can divert them. But what about the miracle of him giving us grace to sustain us in them? The old hymn, and I'm finishing with that thought. When through the fiery trials I cause thee to go... My grace all-sufficient will thee overflow. The flames will not hurt you. I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. Loving Heavenly Father, we pray that this coming year, whatever the fears might be, can we fear you with awe and majesty? If there are those this morning who don't know any hope in their anxiety, Can you bring them to yourself, Lord Jesus?
even as we close this meeting. And what those of us who love you, can we reaffirm that with you we have the victory in Jesus' name. And all the believers said, Amen.